Thank you, Drew. Uh, first of all, thank you to our elders. Uh, I can't tell you, I mean, we've had elders since uh, last October now, and uh, man, it has been a blessing uh, in the ways we've been a brotherhood and uh, the ways we have cared for one another. So thank you guys for um, caring for me. Thank you for all of you for the gift of rest. Uh, I don't know what the last year and a half has taken out of me. I don't know what it's taken out of you, but I know it's significant. (laughs) And I know I have felt it. I I know I'm weary in a way that can't seem to be recovered in the ordinary course of life. And so I'm just thankful for some extended vacations, some extended time off. We normally take about two weeks in the summer anyway, but we're extending that by a little bit. I'm grateful for the chance to to be refreshed so I can be at my best this fall. So thank you all uh, for that. Let me encourage all of you as well to rest, to find ways to rest. Some of you can take a couple weeks off from work, some of you can't, but everyone can rest in some capacity. And I encourage you to do so. Listen to your body, listen to your soul if it's telling you you need some time off, if you need a break. I was at the PCA's General Assembly last week uh, and spent some time with some good friends, and one of my friends said, the bill is going to come due for what the last year and a half has taken out of us. That was a good way to talk about it. The bill's going to come due at some point. So a bill is coming due for what it cost us to live in this crazy world uh, over the last couple of months. And, and one, of the, one of the most, the best ways you can help pay that bill is to give yourself rest. But I want to encourage you, please don't take rest or a, weekly, uh, a break from weekly worship. <laughs> uh, we have some really great preachers lined up over the next four weeks. Uh, and worship, worship really is God's gift of rest to you. So you can come weekly and rest in who Jesus is for you. And so, anyway, I'm going to be around a little bit. I'll be at Summer Seminar this Wednesday. I'll be here next Sunday, actually, just uh, not preaching. Uh, But I'm going to take a four-week break from the pulpit. So thank you for that, and please pray for us. You might be wondering, or maybe not. I'm probably the only one wondering this in the room. But what does this mean for our summer series on the book of Esther? Uh, Well, we're coming to the halfway point today, and then we're going to take four weeks off to let those guys preach whatever they want. I'm not going to force Esther on guest preachers. (laughs) And so they're going to take four weeks off, and then uh, I'll come back and and pick up the series in August, and we'll complete it uh, by Labor Day. And then we'll go into our fall series, which is on uh, the Apostles' Creed, which is going to be awesome. But let me, let me catch us up for where we are in, this, in the book of Esther. Let me remind us of where we are in the story. So you remember, the book of Esther takes place during the time of the exile. And what that means is that the people of God are scattered to live amongst all the nations of the earth. And this, Esther, is the story of a particular Jewish people living in a city called Susa, which is in modern-day Iran. And they're under the rule, this is one of the capitals, under the rule of the mighty Persian Empire. And so these, these characters you're going to hear when we read it, and I'm going to reintroduce you, make sure you know who they are. The king that's mentioned in this story over and over again, his name is King Ahasuerus, better known in history as Xerxes I. The, the historian Herodotus said that Xerxes, <laughs> I love this, was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings, an ambitious and, ruth, and ruthless ruler, a brilliant warrior, and a jealous lover. That's Xerxes I, and he seems to have absolute power and control throughout the book of Esther. And then Esther herself is is a Jewish orphan who was raised in Susa by her older cousin Mordecai, who serves in the king's court. And through this strange set of events that I can't fully recap for you right now, Esther, of all people, marries Xerxes to become the queen of Persia. 
even though her Jewish identity has been concealed from everybody in the palace, even the king himself. So by, by, by chapter 5, as we get here, Esther has been queen, the queen of Persia, for five years. And the last person mentioned in the story is a guy by the name of Haman. Haman is the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire. He is a power-hungry man. He's, he's a man with a fragile ego, which is not a good combination. And because he felt personally offended by Mordecai, Mordecai refused to bow to him. Because he felt offended by that, he manipulated the king into ordering the murder, the genocide, of all of Mordecai's people. Right? The entire Jewish population is, is, uh, is, is set to be annihilated on one certain day, like a few months from now. It's a crazy story. And so where we ended chapter 4 was with Mordecai pleading with Esther to intercede. Saying, go to the king. Intercede on behalf of your people to stop this terrible evil. If you remember our last sermon on this, Mordecai says, Esther, perhaps the hidden hand of God has placed you in this position in, as queen for such a time as this. So that you can be the instrument through which God saves his people. But for Esther to do this, it is incredibly risky. She would have to make known her Jewish identity, which would place her life in danger with everyone else. She would have to approach the king without being called, which ordinarily meant certain death. You didn't go before the king unless he calls you. Unless, if you came uninvited, if he, if he extended the golden scepter to you, then you would know he showed you mercy and you could come. In the, end, in, in the end of chapter 4, Esther agrees to do it. She's going to go before the king. She says, if I perish, I perish. And she and all the Jewish people are fasting on her behalf for three days to prepare. And now today, like this long cliffhanger comes to an end, we see what happens when Esther goes before the king. I've entitled this, The Hidden Hand of God and a Royal Mediator. Would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? This is Esther chapter 5, starting verse 1. It's the whole chapter. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his, th- in his hand, Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. 
Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his, fin- his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king, to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your spirit, which enables us to understand your word, and I pray that he would help us now. Lord, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft and receptive to the word of God. And for me, Lord, as I preach, I pray that my speech and my message would not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Should be seated, please. I wonder if you've ever had a time in your life where you needed a mediator. Have you ever had a time where you needed someone to represent you before another, someone to advocate for you? I've told this story a couple of times in sermons uh, in the past, but I'm going to keep telling it because I really like the story, and it's perfect for this illustration. One of the the most significant times in my life when I needed a mediator is when I was trying to win April back after breaking up with her for the third time. (laughs) Yes, you guys have probably heard the story. You know I was a terrible, terrible boyfriend. We broke up three times. But hey, we celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary this week. So, you know, it kind of worked out. Yeah, right? Thank you. I'll take that. But friends, but the drama back then, I, I actually thought that I might have lost her forever due to this, this decision. I was, I was a confused man, and after our third breakup, she was understandably done with me. And she said, <laughs> she's, this is great. She said, listen, here's what's going to happen. In a few weeks, you're going to miss me, and you're going to regret your decision. Don't call me. I'm done. Which, you know, made me want it more, you know, so this is brilliant. But she was right. I, I, I did start missing her, but it was like, it was more than just missing her. Like, I had, I had an epiphany. I had, a, I had a spiritual awakening of sorts, and I came to my senses, and I realized, what in the world am I doing? And I set myself on a mission to win her back. The only problem was, true to her word, she was not talking to me, right? She was not even going to take a phone call from me. So you know what that means? I needed a mediator. <laughs> I needed someone to go to her on my behalf. I needed someone to advocate for me. And so I asked a mutual friend of ours, his name is Brett Rydens, to intercede for me. Brett lived in the same city as April. He had access to her, and so every time they hung out, every time they got together, he would find a way to plead my case. (laughs) He would say things like, you know, I was talking to Matt the other day, and man, he seems really different. You know, maybe you just want to take a phone call from him. I don't know. It was really great. To make a very, very long story short, through Brett's mediation, 
he got April to take a phone call from me, which led to her meeting me in person to hear me out, which led to us eventually getting back together, getting engaged, and getting married. And Brett was my best man because he was the best mediator. It's a, it's a great story. And Brett would be tickled pink to know that he's the Jesus figure in this story. <laughs> but friends, surely you, know something, surely you know what it's like to need a representative. Perhaps you've needed a lawyer to represent your case. We, we know what it's like to need a mediator. And that's where we are in Esther chapter 5. The Jewish people need a mediator in the worst kind of way. Friends, they stand under a death sentence. And they desperately need someone who would be a representative mediator for them. They need someone to go before the king, someone who has access to him, and to represent them and advocate and to plead for mercy. And the only person who is positioned to do this in this whole story is Esther. And friends, through this story, what I want to convince you of today is that when it comes to your relationship to God, you too need a mediator. You need someone who has access to God to represent you, to advocate on your behalf, to plead for mercy. And that someone can only be Jesus. So we're going to have two points today. Number one, you need the right mediator. And number two, the mediator needs the right approach. Okay, you need the right mediator. The mediator needs the right approach. Let's look first, number one. You need the right mediator. Now listen, if you've been around the church for a while, this point may be obvious or assumed. You may think, of course, of course I need a mediator. I've read 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So a lot of you in this room are probably comfortable with the idea that you need help, <laughs> that you need a mediator between you and God. But I want to acknowledge that in our broader culture, in our modern culture today, this is a foreign concept, right? Like, we like mediators when it comes to legal things or real estate things or things we don't understand, like full of language and laws that we don't get, and so gladly somebody help me and represent me, right? But in general, we do not like the idea of our fate being in the hands of anyone else but ourselves, right? You feel that? Even when it comes to our relationship to God. In 1838, the Harvard Divinity School commencement address was given by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is a graduate, but has since um, changed a bit in his views. And he gave a commencement speech that is famous and is famously controversial for the ways that it challenged conventional religion. And at one point, Emerson said this to the graduates of the Harvard Divinity School that year. He said, let me admonish you, first of all, to go alone. To refuse the good models, even those which are sacred in the imagination of men, and dare to love God without mediator or veil. This was kind of part of Emerson's evolving worldview, that he had fixated on the power of the individual soul and on self-reliance. But that statement, that line, it captures the spirit of the age, doesn't it? Something even in me wanted to go, yeah, that's right. I don't need anybody, right? I, don't, I I'm dare to love God without mediator or veil. That sounds good to me. Go it alone. Question the models presented to you. Don't let anyone tell you you need anything outside of yourself to access God. Emerson said, dare to love God without mediator. 
And yet, friends, the need for a mediator before God is a massively important biblical theme. Like, what is happening here in Esther 5 is a micro version of a macro theme in the scriptures. And that is the fate of everyone hanging on one lone representative. One advocate, one mediator. The Jewish people in this story, they cannot go to the king themselves. Esther must go for them. And life or death hangs upon her, upon the mediator. Like, we can't go into all the examples of this in the Bible, but think about it. Think of stories like David and Goliath. Remember, one warrior is chosen from each nation to represent the entire nation. Goliath represents the Philistines. No one wants to represent Israel because of the menacing giant until the shepherd boy David comes forward. And the idea is that the fate of the nation, life or death, hangs on this one representative. Or think especially of the high priest of the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 summarizes their job description. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The people of Israel cannot come to God on their own. They must come through a mediator, the high priest who stands between them and God and offers a sacrifice to satisfy God's justice and his judgment upon their sin. The point is this. We have competing worldviews, right? Contrary to our modern sensibilities, the scriptures say you cannot dare to love God without a mediator. In order to be a Christian, you're going to have to admit that you need help outside of yourself. You need someone to represent you before God. You need a mediator. Why is this? Because this is the way God set it up. (laughs) He is too holy. He's too awesome. He's he's an all-consuming fire of blazing glory, and you and I, because of our fall into sin, we're too sinful. We're too broken. We're too weak to enter on our own, enter into, into his presence unmediated. When that happens, any time in the Old Testament, it is not a pretty outcome. It is certain death. We've got to grapple with this. We cannot go before the king on our own. We must have a mediator. You need a mediator. But friends, you don't need just any mediator. You need the right mediator. The fact is, you actually have representation before God already. You have one of two options. It's either Adam or Christ. It's Adam or Christ. The Bible says there are only two individuals that have stood as a representative for all of humanity. Adam and Christ. That means when Adam was in the garden, he served as a representative for you. For all of humanity, the fate of everyone who would be born after him rested on Adam's shoulders. Life or death was in his hands. And when, he, and when Adam chose to rebel against God and fell into sin, we fell with him. It is as if, as our representative, it is as if we ourselves were in the garden and sinned with him. Therefore, if Adam is your mediator, if you are in Adam, then what he pleads for you is for your rejection and for your death, the due penalties for sins. But thankfully, thankfully, brothers and sisters, that's not the only option. Because there's a second Adam, there's a better Adam, there's Jesus Christ. 
And when Christ was on the earth, he too served as a representative for all who would believe in him. Listen, likewise, the fate of everyone rests on his shoulders. Life or death is in his hands. And that means, friends, that when he lived the perfect life on earth, that means it is as if we lived it too, with him. The righteousness of his perfect life is given to us, because in Christ, all things plead for our acceptance. That means if you believe in him, when he died on the cross, it is as if we died with him, so that in Christ, all things plead for your forgiveness. And when he rose from the dead, it was as if we rose with him to new and everlasting life. Why? Because Jesus is our mediator. The second Adam, the better Adam. That's why the scriptures say, for as by a man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is our, this is our reality, friends. You don't have a choice of whether to have a mediator between you and God. You do have a choice of which mediator it is, Adam or Christ. In Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. You need the right mediator. So how do we know he's the right mediator? Well, let's move to our second point. That the mediator needs the right approach. And this is where uh, we get to see how Esther, in her role, is a foreshadowing of Christ. Which is wonderful, because we've been kind of hard on Esther up to this point, if you've been part of this series. Right, her approach to living as a Jew in a Persian king's palace up to this point has been what I'll call the Aaron Burr approach from Hamilton. Talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. That's, that's what Esther's been doing in the palace for five years. She's taken the path of least resistance. She's not identified herself with her people. But in this chapter, this, this is Esther's moment where she steps into her role of identifying with the people of God and mediating on their behalf. And every step of the way, she actually gives us an advanced look of the greater mediator, Jesus. Look with me. Notice, notice how she comes before the king. Not in strength, but in weakness. Not in pride, but in humility. It says, before she came before the king, she fasted for three days to identify herself with all the Jewish people who were fasting and mourning because of the edict of death. Therefore, when she comes before the king, even though she is dressed up in her royal robes, what stands out above anything else is the weakness of her appearance. She's pale. She's probably emaciated. Cheeks stained with tears. This is really important. One commentator challenges our popular readings of this moment. He says this, Esther's entry into the king's chamber is a moment the Sunday school version of the story tends to get wrong. In that version, Esther's appearance in the throne room is a moment that evokes the king's great love for her and arouses great admiration for her beauty. That may be true, but the emphasis there is misleading. Esther didn't come in radiance, but in brokenness and in desolation. In other words, friends, what moves the heart's king toward her is not her beauty, it's her weakness. You've got to get the picture of Esther in your mind, a royal figure in her royal robes who has willingly embraced and embodied suffering and weakness. Can you see her? 
And now, can you see the picture of Christ? The royal figure. The king of heaven. The king of kings. Yet when he appears on your behalf, he doesn't come in strength, but in weakness. Not in pride, but in humility. He willingly embraces the weakness of our human flesh. The humility of a servant's life. The suffering of death, even death on a cross. All for us. All for our sake. Friends, let me ask you, is this not what moves your hearts towards Christ? Not just His majesty, but His meekness. To come all the way down for you. To identify Himself with you. Your sin, your suffering, your pain. Is that what moves your heart? See, the mediator needs the right approach, and the right approach is the way of weakness. And to accentuate this, the author shows how Esther as mediator is contrasted in this whole chapter with Haman, who is one big ball of human pride. Right? The author is showing that there are two ways of being in the world. There's the way of Esther, and there's the way of Haman. There's the way of humility, and there's the way of pride. And the author is showing us that pride is inherently fragile and fleeting and will never satisfy you notice that Haman, he craves significance above anything else. Even though he is the second most powerful man, he's second in command of all of Persia, and he alone is invited to Esther's dinner party with the king. And he leaves that party joyful and glad of heart, but all it takes is to pass by old Mordecai on the way home, who once again does not give him the response that he wants, that he deserves, and Haman is undone. He's filled with rage. Like, we all know what that feels like, right? If you live by this other approach, by the way of Haman, by the way of pride, if you seek power and significance and recognition from others, that that identity is so unstable, it can be undone by one Mordecai. For me, it's, I can get a hundred compliments on the sermon, but the one criticism is the one that sticks in my mind. You know what that's like, right? We all do. It's a a miserable existence. And yet the only thing maybe more miserable is to be friends with that guy and have to rebuild his fragile ego. That's what happens after Haman goes home. He gathers his friends and his wife, Zeresh, so that he can remind them and himself of how great he is. Look at verse 11. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, and yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. See how fragile? Verse 14, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. Haman built oversized gallows for his oversized pride. And friends, how often do we do the same? Even if in our own minds building the gallows for anyone who won't play along with our selfish ambitions. You see, 
There's the way of Ammon, and there's the way of Esther. And thankfully, our mediator, Jesus Christ, chooses the right approach. He takes the way of Esther, the way of humility, and as a result of his approach, friends, he secures the favor of God on your behalf. In the same way that Esther was shown mercy by the king as he extended the scepter towards her, so in Christ you are shown mercy by the king of heaven as he extends the cross towards you. Because the cross is the golden scepter of the world by which we receive mercy from God. And just as Esther is given access to the king to listen, for him to listen to her request, so brothers and sisters, in Christ you are given access to the God of the universe. His heart, his, his eyes, his ears are turned towards you in receptivity. Scriptures say in Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. And as we heard earlier, the author of Hebrews encourages us then to come boldly. Why? Because God's heart is utterly predisposed to generosity to you. Just as Esther is offered anything she wants, up to half of the king's kingdom, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are offered the whole kingdom. Everything. Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of it. We will inherit everything, a new heaven and a new earth. Furthermore, we are encouraged with this access to ask for whatever we need. Philippians chapter 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. See, friends, just as Esther finds favor with the king, so too, in Christ, we have favor of God. Because the mediator, our mediator, took the right approach. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. He ascended for us. And friends, even right now, he represents us before the throne of God above in heaven. He advocates for us. He prays for us. He is the great mediator. So, brothers and sisters, we need the right mediator, and the mediator needs the right approach, and that is what we have by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. In closing, let me tell you, now he invites you to embody this approach to the world. Listen, you are not the mediator, but you are lesser mediators. The scripture calls you a kingdom of priests. Remember what priests did? They mediate. And that is what we do. We represent the world to God in prayer and God to the world through your life. So how should we mediate the presence of Christ to the world around us? It can only be in the way of our master. No servant is greater than his master. If his way was the way of humility and suffering and service, then ours would be no different. St. Augustine said, If you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. If humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. So friends, as the church in America tries to figure out who we are amongst the challenges of our times, I would tell you that the most important thing is humility, followed by humility, and finally, humility. 
If humility does not precede everything that we do, our efforts will be fruitless. So friends, let us go out into the world in the way of Christ so that our friends and our neighbors would be won over not by our strength, by our weakness, not by our bravado, but by our humility. So ultimately, they would be won over by Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we ask for your help as we grapple in our hearts with the need for a mediator. Lord, help us to embrace the sense that we need help, that we need help outside of ourselves. We cannot represent ourselves, and we don't want Adam to represent us. Thank you, Lord, that in the fullness of time, you sent the better Adam, the second Adam, and he showed us the way. In his mediation, he shows us the way that we would walk. So, Lord, help us to walk in the path of humility, of suffering, and of service. So, the Lord, the world will be won over. Like the king was won over by Esther's humility and weakness, so the world will be won over to Christ by the beauty of his suffering, by the beauty of his weakness, all on our behalf. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen.